With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking.、Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and、uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Through the Bible with Les Feldick, an inspirational and informative half hour of insight into the heart of Scripture. In addition to teaching the Bible, Les is a full-time rancher, having a down-to-earth, practical teaching style that makes the Bible come to life. All programs are available on audio tape, video tape, and in printed form. At the end of the program, there will be an address where you can contact the ministry. And now, here's Les Feldick with today's lesson. All right, back to First Corinthians chapter 11. We were dealing with the Lord's Supper and how, again, Paul had to upbraid the Corinthians because they were abusing it. Now, here the Corinthian believers were a makeup of a few Jews, more than likely more Gentiles, but from the whole strata of society. Now, naturally, in that day and time, what kind of people were at the bottom of the totem pole socially? Slaves. See, slaves, bomb slaves. And then, of course, you had your wealthy、uh, merchantmen who probably had ships out at sea, and Corinth was their home base. So you had this whole cross section of society, even within that little congregation. All right, now when they had a potluck supper, hey, people are people. They haven't changed a bit. Today, if you're going to have a potluck supper, whether it's at your church, at your golf club, or wherever else, what are the bottom echelon people going to bring? Well, what they can afford, and that'll be more or less the, the mundane things, the, the, the cheaper things that they can afford, and maybe some of them couldn't afford anything, but they free to come. All right, now you come on up through the scale, and people bring various levels of food and so forth. But all right, what do you suppose the wealthy brought? Oh, hey, they brought the best French wine, <laughs> and they brought the the best meat and the best vegetables. See, they could afford it. Now. I can imagine, little before Paul writes, that the poor people were just gouging themselves with the things that the wealthier people were bringing. They had never tasted wine so good, and so they just guzzled it until what was wrong? Hey, they were becoming gluttonous. They were becoming drunk. All right. Then, according to Paul's next verse in verse 22, it would indicate that. Now the people were separating themselves during their potluck supper, and the wealthy was saying, "You're not going to eat the good food that I've brought. You're not going to drink our good wine. You go have your own table." Well, that's the furthest thing from what the church is supposed to be. And so this is what they were doing: they were dividing themselves now according to their status in the culture. And Paul just—he was shocked. Now he says, in the first place, you didn't come to church to fill your bellies with food and drink, but this is what they were doing, and they were abusing. Now there's nothing wrong with a potluck supper once in a while. I'm not one of these that says you can't eat when you come together as believers. In fact, I think that's probably the highlight of our classes here in Oklahoma and even here at the at the studio. After an hour of teaching, we take a coffee break, and my, you know, these gals—they bring out the best that there is. 
and all our classes enjoy these little half hours or so of, of a fellowship time. There's nothing wrong with that. Same way here in the studio. My little wife just loves to bake all the cookies. You know, some people don't want to be classed as being home baking cookies, but she doesn't mind. And so all day she bakes cookies for this afternoon, and we have a nice time of fellowship in between programs. There's nothing wrong with that. But they were abusing it, see? And they were coming in, and they were being gluttonous at the food, and they were actually drinking so much that they became drunk. And you say, Christians? Yeah. Yeah. No wonder Paul was shocked and upset, see? All right. Now then, verse 22. I think he's going to just put the whole kibosh on the thing. And he says, what? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Oh, that's obvious. He wasn't talking about the elements of the Lord's table, for goodness sakes. He was talking about their potluck dinners. He said, if you can't do it right, then eat at home. Don't try to bring that into the church environment. All right. Have you not houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and shame them who have not? See what he's saying? especially to the wealthier people. He said, how dare you flaunt your wealth by bringing all this expensive gourmet food when you know that there are other people at slave level and so forth? They can't afford things like this. So Paul says, cut it out. Quit it. Read on. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? What does he say? I praise you not. And so he is gently condemning them by just simply saying, I can't praise you for this because this is not the way it should be done. All right, now verse 23, he's going to come in and he's going to give the real purpose for what we call the Lord's Supper or the communion table. And again, I'm going to emphasize that it has nothing to do with the salvation of these Corinthians. These Corinthians are already saved in spite of their behavior. They are saved, they're believers, and the practice or the lack of practice of the Lord's table has nothing to do with their salvation. But now we'll see how Paul delineates the reason and the purpose for the Lord's table in the church program. Verse 23, For I have received of the Lord... Now, do you see what he says? He didn't get it from the twelve in Jerusalem. He didn't get it from some seminary. He didn't get it from some denominational bigwig. Where did he get it? From the Lord. All right, now let's see where he always comes back to that. Go back with me to Galatians, because, see, I want you to be able to compare Scripture with Scripture. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. And we've looked at these verses before, but we'll look at them again. We'll probably look at them again in the future because they are tantamount to our understanding Paul's apostleship. Verse 1, uh, verse 11 of Galatians 1. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. Neither did I receive it of man, neither was I taught it, by man, but how did he get it? By revelation, a revealing from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to remember, where is Jesus Christ all during Paul's revelations? In glory. 
See? And so everything that Paul writes concerning our doctrine today is from the ascended Lord after his death, burial, and resurrection. And remember, until he went to that cross and died, he was not the object of faith to the main run of Gentiles. But once he had finished the work of the cross and revealed his plan of salvation to this apostle, then it becomes that gospel, as he says in chapter 2, which I preach to the Gentiles. You understand that? All right, so he says, I wasn't taught it, but I received it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, then you come down to verse 15 where he says, And it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal. Now, there's that same word again. What does it mean to reveal? Hey, it's a revelation, see? That God could give this man the revelation of, uh, of Jesus, the Son, and that I might preach him, verse 16, among the, now I told you I didn't like that word, heathen, but really what is it? The Gentiles, see? That immediately, verse 16, I, I conferred not with flesh and blood, now verse 17, neither did I go up to Jerusalem. You see how the Holy Spirit is prompting the man to write definitively that he had no contact with those 12 men in Jerusalem. So, when he speaks of revelation then, he is always referring to that which Christ revealed from his position now in the heavenlies. And then you come into chapter 2, verse I just sort of semi-quoted, and verse 2. He goes up to Jerusalem now to convince the twelve that his gospel to the Gentiles was not connected with Judaism. And so he says, I went up, that is, to Jerusalem, again by revelation. Well, what does he mean? God instructed him, Paul, it's time for you to go up and meet with the twelve. You go up to Jerusalem. And he says, and I communicated, reading on in verse 2, and I communicated unto them the head honchos in Jerusalem, which would be the twelve and the various other church leaders at Jerusalem. And he says, and I communicated unto them that gospel which I preach where? Among the Gentiles. You see that? All right. So everything that Paul has revealed to him to pass on to the Roman world was revealed from the ascended Lord in glory. Not from the twelve, not from the, from the earthly ministry of Christ, but from the ascended Lord. All right, come back to 1 Corinthians 11. So verse 23 again, he used that same word. For I have received of the Lord, that is, by a revelation, that which I also delivered unto you. Now remember, by the time Paul writes the first Corinthian letter, the church of Corinth has been operating long enough to build these excesses. They've been going long enough now that they're getting all these kooky ideas coming in, see? And so this isn't what he taught them at the beginning. This has been a, I don't like to use the word, but it's been an evolutionary thing. It's been moving from one position to another and it's getting worse instead of better. And so this is why he says, this isn't what I delivered unto you at the first. This isn't how I taught you to practice the Lord's Supper. 
You know, men can connive, can't they? Boy, they can come up with the craziest ideas. And sometimes it's good, but see, it leads to excesses. And so that's just exactly what happened here at Corinth. I imagine that when they got ready to have the Lord's table, they realized, well, now, you know, we can't satisfy a whole day's energy with a little cup or a swallow of wine and, and one little piece of unleavened bread. My, let, let, let's, let's just start bringing some food and we can have a real supper out of it. But it led to excesses. And so now Paul has to bring them some criticism, see? All right. So he tells them exactly how it all came about. Look what he says. This is what the Lord revealed to him, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Verse 25, we'll read through and then we'll come back. After the same manner, also he took the cup, and when he had... Uh, let's see, he took the cup, and when he had supped, he said, The cup of the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Let's go back to Matthew 26. I hope i got time to do all this. Let's go back to Matthew 26. I think it's 26 or 27. I'll have to look a second. Twenty-six. Matthew 26, dropping all the way down to verse 17. Matthew 26, verse 17. Matthew 26, verse 17. Now, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, And where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say to him, The Master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, I haven't got time here, and I'll probably stir up a hornet's nest. But you see, when they ate the Passover lamb... What was the position at the table? Huh? Standing, wasn't it? Standing? Standing. All right. So if they were to be standing to eat the Passover lamb, that is back there in Exodus. They were to stand and eat the Passover lamb with their feet shod. Why? Hey, they're ready to go. See? All right. And so the custom, I don't think, had changed all that much. So when he sat down, there was a regular meal that they ate before they killed the Passover lambs, if I understand Passover. So this is the, the, the Last Supper, but it's not the Passover lamb. All right? Enough for that for now. So he sat down with the twelve to eat the Last Supper that was uh, before they would start killing the lambs. And uh, then you come all the way down to verse 26. And as they were eating, now that was at a recline. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them and said, drink all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But 
I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out. All right, now why did I read this to you? Does Jesus give any doctrinal exposition on the bread and the wine? Not a word. Not a word. All he says is, this is my body which is broken for you. Then he says, this is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for you. But no explanation. No instructions on how to practice it from here on. Nothing. Well, now let's go all the way back to Genesis 14. Genesis 14. And here comes this hard-to-pronounce name out of Jerusalem. Who? Melchizedek the high priest of Salem, which was the little village which later became Jerusalem, of course. And in order to get the backdrop, you remember Abraham had put together a little army out of his servants and so forth and had recaptured the people that Lot and the people of Sodom had been taken captive. And he's coming back after their victory. And uh, here's a little aside that, that is loaded, of course, with a lot of prophetic uh, impact. And verse 18, and this Melchizedek, this high priest of Salem, who was not a high priest of the Jews, that hadn't even been formed yet, you know. And so here comes this Melchizedek, verse 18, the king of Salem, and he brought forth what? Bread and wine. Now, that was not what they normally used in the sacrifices of Abraham's day. So why in the world did Melchizedek offer bread and wine? Well, it was a subtle prophecy, see? Oh, so subtle. Because what did the bread and the wine, as Jesus now uh, administered it in, in Matthew 26, and now if you'll come back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, hopefully I can tie all this together. What was the subtle prophecy when old Melchizedek brought bread and wine of all things? Hey, the resurrection, see? The resurrection. And that's what the whole idea of the Lord's Supper is. That it is to be a constant reminder that every time we partake of that bread and of that cup, it is a reminder of that finished work of the cross. And this is the first time it's explained. In fact, one commentator puts it this way. This is probably the first time that Jesus is quoted chronologically in the Scriptures because the Gospels haven't been written yet. Have you ever thought of that? The Gospels haven't been written yet. So Paul couldn't delve back like I just did and go to Matthew or one of the other writers and say, well, this, would, this came by revelation. And isn't it amazing how that God does everything in his own order? But before the Gospels were ever written, Paul writes to the Corinthians the very same words. See? All right, now read on. Verse 26. Here is the doctrinal reason for the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth or you remind yourself of what? The Lord's death. Now I'm going to point out two things. 
There is no stipulation from the apostle as to how often a church practices the Lord's Supper. I don't care if your denomination practices it every Sunday, that's your prerogative. If you want to practice it once a year, that's your prerogative. If you want to practice it once a quarter or once a month or however, that is not the thing here. The word is, whenever you have the Lord's Supper, whether it's often or whether it's not as often, that's beside the point. But you better have the right mindset when you do. And that is that you are reminding yourself, not the person next to you, not someone across the church, but you are reminding yourself that Christ died, His blood was shed, and He arose from the dead. That's the only purpose of the Lord's Supper. And it is to be a solemn experience. And again, you see, the Corinthians were so abusing this beautiful, beautiful picture in types by their indulgence with food, getting half drunk on too much wine. How in the world could they receive the impact of such a solemn service? And Paul had to upbraid them, and he says, stop it. You do your eating and your drinking in your home. When you come to the Lord's house for the Lord's Supper, it is a solemn occasion, see? All right, now if we've got time, we'll go on a little further. So he says, whenever you do this, you show the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's table will not stop until the Lord returns. Now then, verse 27. Here comes the apostles' description of what our attitude should be as we partake. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, but let a man examine himself. Now there's the secret, I think, to behavior at the communion service. You don't examine the next person. You don't sit there and judge the guy across the church. But you look at your own heart. You look at your own attitude. Am I right with the Lord? Am I right with my fellow believers? And if you can say yes and amen to that, then you feel free to partake. If you can't, you better withhold. Because then you are drinking and eating condemnation. See, reading on in verse uh, 28, but let a man examine himself, then let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. If the self-examination is okay with you, and you're content that you don't have bitter enmity with a fellow believer, and that you're right with the Lord, you're free to partake. Absolutely you are. Then verse 28, but let a man examine. Then verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily. Now all that means is he that partakes of the Lord's table with the wrong attitude. The Corinthians were going in almost with, a, with an attitude of revelry. Totally wrong. Many others of the Corinthians had a real thing against someone across the room. Someone that they had probably taken to a court of law over something. And their enmity was just like sparks. Paul says that won't work. You cannot take the Lord's table with that kind of an attitude. So he says, examine yourself. And then verse 30, since the Corinthians were guilty of so many things that should have kept them from partaking, he says, for this cause, many are sick and weakly among you. In other words, 
God was already chastising them by taking away their health. And he says, many are asleep. What does he mean? They died. Now, we have to understand that there is, from John's little epistle in the back of your Bible, there is a sin unto death. I don't think we've got time to go back and look at it. But John warns, you don't pray for it. Even though you think somebody is awfully out of step, you never pray, Lord, take them out. That's not our prerogative. But the Lord does have that prerogative, that if a believer will not shape up, and if a believer continues to walk in known sin, yes, God will take them, because he's not going to let anybody drag his name through the mud. Now, we know that there are people who have made profession of salvation. They've probably been members of a church, and they're doing the same thing. And if the Lord doesn't deal with them, if the Lord doesn't chastise them, then Paul teaches in the book of Hebrews, they are not his children. You don't know how many people have asked me, well, I've had so-and-so in the church. They were good church members, and then all of a sudden they ran off with some young woman and left their family. Are they still saved? Well, you know what my answer is. They never were. Because if they were saved and they did something like that, then God would take them out. And that's what he means here when he says that many are sickly and many of you are already asleep. They died. Thank you for joining us again for Through the Bible with Les Feldick. If you'd like to order audio tapes, videos, or any of our printed material, you may do so by writing Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. That's Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. Or you can call us toll-free if you'd like at one 800 369 7856. That's 1-800-369-7856. Remember, this is a faith ministry, and your participation with us is greatly appreciated. Again, our address is Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. And our phone is 1-800-369-7856. Thanks again for listening, and please join us next time for Through the Bible with Les Feldick. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.